This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde reflects on the latest revelations to come out about Justice Secretary Dominic Raab. Journalist Amelia Tate gets to the bottom of one of the high street's most shocking failures, Made.com. And finally, writer Sophie Hayward talks with British director, actor and writer Kathy Burke about making it through her darkest period. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we begin, just a warning. There is strong language in this episode. Now, from the Brexit department to the Foreign Office, the Deputy PM Dominic Raab has been remarkably consistent in his focus on all the wrong things. Marina Hyde takes us through a roll call of ineptitude and intimidation. Read by Emma Stannard. I want to begin this column with an apology. When Dominic Raab and his forehead vein first throbbed into the public consciousness as one of the many Brexit secretaries during Theresa May's rolling malfunction of an administration, I note I simply regarded him as the sort of tightly wound white-collar loner who owned a number of lockups with chest freezers at whose contents one could only shudderingly guess. What was I thinking? Merely, I guess, that Raab would one day be played by Johnny Lee Miller in a three-star ITV psychological thriller called Something Wicked This Way Comes. That now feels naive to the point of twee. It has this week been placed on the record that Dominic Raab is in fact the sort of man whose obsession with correctly formatted documents left his officials being told that people had died during the UK's chaotic evacuation from Afghanistan last year. Back then, Raab was Foreign Secretary. He is now back at justice, after Brandon Lewis found the resolution to the barrister's strike that had eluded Raab during the 27-minute Liz Truss interregnum. Has Dominic's return to the department been met with bouquets and tearful euphoria? In short, no. Although I believe there have been tears. 
He is now the subject of a formal inquiry into multiple accusations of bullying across the three departments in which he has held cabinet roles. A great look for a man recently restored to the position of Deputy Prime Minister as part of Rishi Sunak's alleged cabinet of all the sensibles. As for what this perfectly formatted monstrosity's self-styled work ethic has actually achieved in those departments, just a quick recap. We've dealt with his non-achievements at justice. Do recall he resigned as Brexit secretary over the deal he himself had negotiated following a tenure in which he publicly admitted to never having read the Good Friday Agreement. As Raab sniffed to the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee... It's not like a novel. You sit down and say, do you know what? Over the holidays, this is a cracking read. I mean, it's 36 pages. You're the Brexit secretary. Then again, maybe the Good Friday Agreement wasn't correctly formatted, which should certainly induce an enduring sense of failure in all those involved in getting it over the line. The rest of his tenure at the Department for Exiting the European Union was a journey of remarkable discovery. I hadn't quite understood the full extent of this, he breezed at one point. But if you look at the UK and how we trade in goods, we are particularly reliant on the Dover-Calais crossing. Amazing. But it was at the Foreign Office that our hero would plumb his true depths. He crystallised the only way is down trend of British high office, somehow achieving what once seemed the impossible, being a worse foreign secretary than Boris Johnson. As mentioned, this week it emerged that Justice Department officials had been told that people had died during the Afghanistan evacuation because of the then Foreign Secretary's refusal to review documents that, of all abominations, did not meet his exacting formatting standards. This feels like a particularly psychopathic version of that thing where a child plays with the box the present came in because its actual contents are too advanced for him. By way of a reminder, Raab was one of the authors of seminal Text of Our Times Britannia Unchained. Among many and various other lowlights, Britannia Unchained bemoaned British laziness. Very bold. Raab was so low profile for most of his Foreign Office tenure that I assumed he'd been furloughed. His big test, and wow, was it a big one, was Afghanistan. You will remember he distinguished himself by failing to return from his holiday to deal with the historic crisis. A holder of one of the great offices of state in a government that was at the time hectoring everyone else to return to their offices was literally phoning in his Afghanistan response from a Cretan beach hotel that advertises itself as the natural domain of the privileged and perceptive, which in his case was only half right. Raab took issue with the backlash. The stuff about me paddleboarding, nonsense, he told an interviewer following his belated return. The sea was actually closed. It was a red notice. Grimly hilarious to defend what one of your own senior MPs had already called the biggest foreign policy failure since Suez, with granular detail on that day's swimming advice in your luxury resort. 
A less robust denial came moments later when he was asked whether he had, in fact, rejected critical documents on the basis of format. As Raab cavilled, that's not quite right. This week's allegations would suggest it was not only right, but in fact much worse. But back then, Raab was honking, I make no apology for saying I needed the clear facts for each case presented precisely so that we can make swift decisions. I'm sure we've all seen many instances of the I make no apology for device out there in the wild, but this is surely its final form. Sorry, Dominic, but no. Make an apology for it. Then again, where would you even start? This week's horribly clarifying revelations come hot on the heels of the discovery that not a single Afghan affiliated with the British government has been accepted and evacuated under the Home Office resettlement scheme almost a year after it was launched. Those who survive face torture and death. Many have already lost their lives and it feels impossible to escape the conclusion that this is what we do now in global Britain. A government, or series of governments, one loses track, that lies to its own people will obviously think nothing of doing the same to the people of whom the UK made use overseas. We made promises to those who served us, then let them down in the most borderline, homicidal way possible. While Johnson spaffed out some disgraceful bollocks about the shambolic exit being one of the outstanding military achievements of the last 50 years. History is already laughing mirthlessly at him. The Foreign Affairs Committee concluded that the manner of our withdrawal from Afghanistan was a disaster and a betrayal of our allies that will damage the UK's interests for years to come. Yet the caravan has moved on. This utterly shameful moment came in the middle of so many other shameful moments that it has somehow contrived to fade into the general background of shame that has characterised the past few years at home and abroad. Of course, it wouldn't be a disqualifying blot on Dominic Raab's record. Of course he would survive. Of course he would be made Deputy Prime Minister again. Of course, of course, of course. It's all just a matter of course now until the public finally decides this epical shower of self-motivated incompetence have run theirs. That was... Dominic Raab may have the most terrible record in government, but at least it's perfectly formatted. By Marina Hyde. Read by Emma Stannard. Next. It gave its customers low prices by making them wait. So why did May.com's dream of affordable luxury end with a mountain of boxes in a Port Talbot warehouse? Amelia Tate explores the downfall of a middle-class favourite. Read by Serena Mantegi. Every day since the 16th of November, 25 lorry loads of sleek, Scandinavian-inspired furniture have arrived at Europe's largest indoor auctioneers in Port Talbot, South Wales. Staff at John Pye Auctions normally work from 8.30am to 5pm, but until Christmas, the warehouse will be staffed from 5am to 2am as workers unload beige box after beige box into the 316,000 square foot facility. 
From a metal balcony overlooking the warehouse, the stacked boxes look not unlike a towering cityscape. On the side of each is a white plus sign inside a circle, the logo of former furniture retailer Made.com. Seven days before the first truck arrived, Made.com went into administration. Launched in London in 2010, until very recently, Made was a success story. A disruptive e-commerce model combined with a desirable mid-century style helped the brand earn £100 million in sales by 2017. You've probably encountered Made.com furniture if you've ever been inside a millennial's home or even so much glanced at Instagram. Bright velvets, tapered wooden legs and gold accents put Made.com on the map. But now, seemingly overnight, the brand has been unmade. It has been described as the Indiana Jones warehouse. The amount of boxes we've got, six, seven foot high, says Jonathan Beasley, site manager at John Pye in Port Talbot. Administrators PricewaterhouseCoopers orchestrated the deal with John Pye to raise a small proportion of the £187 million owed to Made.com's creditors. The auctioneers are expecting to sell 30,000 items that will arrive in 1,100 lorry loads from two of Made.com's warehouses. On the 27th of November, the firm held its first online auction of stock, selling 1,039 pieces to about 700 customers. The most bid-upon item was an L-shaped navy velvet sofa with a recommended retail price of £2,750 that went for £945. The biggest bargain was a £295 brass TV stand that sold for £42. One customer bought six items that would have cost them about £6,000 a few weeks ago. They bagged the lot for just over £2,000, including John Pye's fees. Made stuff is classic, but a little bit quirky. That's what I always liked about it, says Claire, a 56-year-old from Derbyshire who managed to secure a blue corner sofa in the auction for just over £700. Claire previously purchased two yellow made chairs for a holiday cottage she lets and says compliments from guests were abundant. Made did have an iconic look, but it wasn't over-expensive, so it is a real shame that we won't be able to order from them anymore, she says. Her new sofa will go in her sunroom, and she believes she got a good deal, as weeks ago the sofa was priced at around £2,000. The number of new bidders coming to our platform has been incredible. There's an awful lot of excitement, says Operations Director Steve Anderson. Frenzied bidding reveals that consumers still love the brand, which might leave many wondering, how exactly did this seemingly thriving company die? On the 2nd of February 2010, Julien Kelled took a Eurostar from Paris to London to start a new business and life. British entrepreneur and lastminute.com founder Brent Hoberman had approached e-commerce expert Ning Li with a plan to disrupt the furniture industry. Khaled went to business school with Li, and his experience working for a furniture importer meant he was brought on board. Completing the group was design specialist Chloe McIntosh. Khaled says the four founders planned to 
enable customers to finally get good quality original design at a decent price. How, exactly? Khaled says that a decade ago, British brands would bulk buy furniture from factories in Asia, placing big orders to fill their stores up and down the UK. That doesn't enhance creativity, because if you want to launch new ranges, try new designers, give a chance to new players, you can't take a risk on buying 1,000 of the same piece from a Chinese factory, Khaled says. So, brands did not take risks. Everything looked like everything else. What we did is very simple, Khaled says. Instead of bulk buying pieces, waiting months for them to arrive, stocking them in shops and hoping they would sell, Made.com's founders launched a website, showcased new designs from new designers and sold furniture before acquiring a single bit of stock. Only after receiving orders from customers did Made.com place its own with manufacturers, buying only what had already sold. This meant that customers were forced to wait for their goods, but, crucially, they also got them more cheaply because Made.com had removed the middleman and wasn't spending huge sums pre-ordering a lot of stock. That was the original innovation, releasing new original products of good quality for cheaper prices just because people would be happy to wait, Khaled says. They'd be happy to wait because they get better items, or they actually like the concept. Just over a month after Khaled arrived in London, Made.com was launched. Khaled describes those early days as fast-paced, extremely exciting and full of creativity. But naturally, there were still teething problems. Khaled personally visited manufacturers to convince them the business model would work, and these conversations were not always easy. Going to the factory, you had no credentials, nobody knew you, he says. Khaled eventually convinced manufacturers that he would be able to offer them regular orders and a stable flow of work. Meanwhile, the brand had to assure customers that it would not run away with their money. We had to show we were a trustable brand, which took time, Khaled says. And then, three months in, Made.com's first warehouse partner went bankrupt. But... Khaled says Made.com was able to respond to these challenges because it had agility as a young company. And ultimately, Made.com didn't have to wait too long for success to arrive. In 2012, the business raised £6 million in funding to aid international expansion. And in 2013, the British government backed the company by selecting it for its Future 50 programme, an initiative designed to fast-track growing tech businesses by providing it with public and private sector support. Sales passed £1 billion around the brand's 10th birthday, by which point Made.com had a loyal and enthusiastic customer base in seven European countries, including France, Germany and Spain. It felt like a premium brand, says Daisy Jordan, a 31-year-old from Margate who runs style website Where Next. Jordan bought a home in December 2021, and when it came time to furnish it, it was kind of a given, in a way, that we were going to go to Made.com because their stuff was so nice. Jordan bought a statement yellow sofa for about £300. Quite cheap, compared with similar options on the market. It felt like one of the best furniture places around, she says. At the end of the day, 
The reason people loved Made.com is that we were giving them access to something that they didn't have, Khaled says. Before, he argues, people had cheap functional furniture from our Swedish friends, and it's not even that bad looking, but everybody's got it. The other option was expensive luxury furniture. There wasn't much of a middle market. What we did is we gave customers access to things that were an upgrade from the cheap ones, but at the same price as the cheap ones. Or we also had higher-end pieces that cost half the price of a piece you'd find at top-end design chains. I think that's what people liked. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Amelia Tate's article on the downfall of Made.com. Playwright Camilla Whitehill had a love-hate relationship with Made.com. The 33-year-old Londoner's bed is from the firm, and it arrived quickly, but she waited nearly half a year for some plant pots. I'd forgotten about them. I was like, why did that take five months? She says. Even so, she recently ordered a burnt orange sofa bed from Made.com because she couldn't find anything similar on the market, and she thought it was worth waiting for, even if it took a year. Khaled says that as the brand grew, it did begin pre-buying and storing more stock, a move that helped reduce delivery times. Yet this ultimately led to Made.com's downfall. The firm thrived during the lockdowns caused by the pandemic, but supply chain issues slowed deliveries down. To solve the problem, Made.com doubled its UK warehouse space in April 2021, reducing wait times but significantly increasing its own operating costs. Then, a return to normal life, coupled with a cost-of-living crisis, meant sales slowed. They fundamentally tweaked that low-inventory risk model and overloaded in stock at a time where the market went down, Khaled says. He left Made.com in 2017 because he felt it had become a bit bulky and found it harder to innovate, he wanted to disrupt some new industries. But Khaled stresses that he left Made.com because it was doing well, not because it was struggling. 
I left because I was confident that the staff could do a good job. The team were doing a great job, he says. My only worry was that maybe we were going to become a boring retailer. He never imagined that within five years of his departure, the company would go bust. In June 2021, Made.com went public on the London Stock Exchange, and though the brand was valued at £775 million, its shares fell 7% on its first day of trading. Just over a year later, in September, the company announced that it was cutting jobs and putting itself up for sale because of supply chain issues and increased freight costs, which rose from £8.2 million to £45.3 million in a year. Yet, no buyer stepped forward in time, and the firm stopped taking orders in October before collapsing into administration on the 9th of November. From the outside, Khaled believes that Made.com suffered from supply and warehousing issues, thanks to the pandemic and the invasion of Ukraine. He also feels that higher-ups got too excited about growth and erroneously expected it to continue. Khaled also speculates that the company's structure became too bulky. Managers expect more comfort than the founders, he says, as the latter are passionate enough to work hard for smaller monetary rewards. Made.com hired big-name executives throughout 2022. In May, the company appointed ex-John Lewis director Patrick Lewis as its chief financial officer, and Snapchat's Claire Velotti joined its board. There must have been a way of acting or reacting differently, Khaled says. But I'd remain very cautious about raising any judgment there, as teams were passionate, working hard and doing their best in a tough environment that nobody would have foreseen just a few quarters before. Unsecured creditors are expected to recoup just 2% of what they're owed, while approximately 12,000 customers have been left without the furniture they paid for and 320 staff have been made redundant. White Hill's sofa never arrived, but she managed to get a refund via PayPal. One former employee, made redundant on a 9th of November company-wide Zoom call, says the experience was terrible and describes the PwC employee leading it as having no empathy, no anything. After informing staff they were redundant, the administrator allegedly abruptly ended the call. Boom, push the button and the screen turned black. About 130 former employees are now taking legal action via the law firm Atticus. If successful, those involved could receive up to eight weeks' pay in compensation. PwC says, It is with real regret that redundancies have to be made. We understand that this is an incredibly difficult time for affected staff. Regarding the Zoom call, it says, Due to the volume of people sadly affected, many of whom were working from home or in separate locations, the call with staff was held virtually, as was common given the online nature of the business. While it was not possible to hold a Q&A, given the number of people on the call, all staff were emailed on the same day with the relevant details and offered appropriate advice. 
PwC also says it fulfilled nearly 4,500 orders that were already within the delivery network when the company went into administration. It advises anyone who has not yet received their order to check their debit and credit card purchase protection agreements. Anyone who is unable to obtain a refund through their card provider can submit a claim to PwC. Another former employee says the business had been tightening its belt throughout the year, and while they expected some redundancies, they did not think the company would collapse. The employee says many colleagues found out about the administration from the media and feel Made.com was not open enough with its staff. On LinkedIn, one former employee has expressed anger about the salaries and bonuses paid to its executives, writing... It's sickening that 200 people were paid nearly £1 million combined. Meanwhile, hundreds of my friends and former colleagues around the world, some of the most talented, loyal, dedicated and hard-working people you'll ever meet, are suffering from anxiety and depression, wondering what the future will hold. Also on LinkedIn, founder Hoberman, who left Made.com's board before its flotation, wrote that he was wary of the public company journey should markets become volatile, and added, Made.com got caught with massive inventory at just the wrong time. Co-founder Ning Li, who stepped down as chief executive in 2017, but remained the brand's third largest shareholder, told staff that he tried to buy and save the company. Apparently, it would be preferable to break the company up and sell it in pieces to generate a little more cash, rather than saving jobs and honouring our customers, he wrote. It makes no sense to me, but I wanted you to know that I really tried. Made.com's name was bought by clothing and homeware brand Next for just £3.4 million. Type made.com into your browser and you will be redirected to the next website and a message that reads Made.com has ceased trading, but will be coming back next year, operated by Next. In the meantime, John Pye employees are working hard to store and sell the last of its furniture. I think it will be the most stock we've had on site, says manager Beasley. There are even more boxes than there were during Covid backlogs. Walking past stack after stack of elite grey sofas, modular bean seats and distressed oak media units, it's easy to see just how far Made.com strayed from its original low-inventory model. Normally, Beasley says, John Pye sells anything that hasn't got a heartbeat, gym equipment, appliances and carpets that are often unsold stock or customer returns from big brands. In contrast, the made.com furniture filling the Welsh warehouse was never really unwanted. And yet, here it is regardless. That was Going, Going, Gone. How Made, Millennial's favourite sofa maker, Wound Up Under the Hammer by Amelia Tate. Read by Serena Mantegi. Finally, despite bringing us many of our funniest TV moments, Kathy Burke has faced some dark and troubling times. Here, she talks to Sophie Hayward about menopause, the joy of young people, and why we should all laugh at death. 
Read by Emma Stannard. A heads up that in this interview, Kathy talks about suicide and death. So please take care when listening. When I meet Kathy Burke in a recording studio in North London, she is talking about how much she loves young people and their desire to improve things, their life force. She can't bear oldies like John Cleese complaining about wokeness because he doesn't get it. It's because you're old, she says. You've had your time. It was great. Now fuck off. Why this need to remain relevant? At 58, having already enjoyed a huge career, first as a comic actor and now as a director, Burke has a lot of hope for young people once us old cunts are gone. All of which makes it more surprising that we are actually here to talk about death and specifically a new podcast that Burke has surprised even herself by launching, called Where There's a Will, There's a Wake, in which she talks to her comedy friends about how they would like to die. Dawn French, James A. Caster and Stuart Lee, among other guests, go deep in what Burke describes as a fantasy football version of death and funeral planning. Burke herself has had brushes with the Grim Reaper, one in particular that will shock me when she tells me about it later on. So I just want to take the piss out of it now, she says. We're laughing in the face of death. Reader, it was not always thus. In fact, Burke's life began with death. Her mum died 18 months after giving birth to her daughter. Burke was cared for by various relatives and foster parents, while her dad, a drinker and a builder, tried to sort himself out before taking her back into their home. She says she learned that she could manipulate this situation with other adults by bursting into tears, even though she had never really known any different. I honestly didn't feel anything about not having a mum. It was just that I wanted a Mars bar. When people spoke of her mother, it was as if she were angelic. The only photos she had of her were of her in her wedding dress. So Burke was shocked to eventually discover that she had been opinionated and sweary. Which was so fucking nice to finally find out. Like, oh, so that's where I get it from. As a Catholic in an Irish family, growing up in a council flat in Islington, Burke attended Maria Fidelis Convent School. But, says the nuns even swore a lot too, calling her all sorts of names. She left at 16 and studied drama with Anna Sher the great champion of working-class London talent. By 18, in 1982, she had been cast in a film called Scrubbers, alongside Robbie Coltrane and Miriam Margulies, set in a Young Offenders Institute for Girls, and other small film parts followed. It was sketch comedy where she would really make her name, playing Bananarama and Spice Girls parody acts with French and Saunders, and then Perry the Teenager and Wayne Etta Slob with Harry Enfield in the 1990s. In 1997, her serious acting skills won her the Best Actor Award at Cannes when she co-starred in the incredible Nil by Mouth, playing a woman so badly beaten by her drug dealer husband that she is hospitalised, her spirit almost broken. The BFI have just remastered the film to celebrate its 25th anniversary and she remains immensely proud of it. 
but they filmed it in these very cold, empty flats on sprawling estates in South London. And after long days of shooting, she refused to go to the pub with Ray Winston and the rest of the cast, despite being friendly with them. It had triggered something in her, feelings about a life she could have ended up with. I wanted to go home, shut my door, she tells me, and think, there but for the grace of God go I. At this point, Burke's deepest, secret goal in life was simply to get past the age her mother had died at. So, while some people dread ageing, Burke's 40th birthday was a cause for huge celebration. It was with a cruel twist of fate that she found herself in hospital for major stomach surgery for diverticulitis soon afterwards, only to contract an even more worrying hospital bug while in there. And what the doctors didn't realise is, I've also got a blood condition called Hughes syndrome, which causes the blood to clot. And so, with the C. difficile, because my immune system had just gone out the fucking window, my adrenal glands clotted and bled. So I have no natural adrenaline now. I've been on steroids for 17 years. Still, she recovered from all of this, though she says her energy levels have never been the same again. She used to ride her bike everywhere, but has not been able to since, and feels permanently changed. She has also suffered from Bell's palsy. Yet it was only in her mid-fifties, just a few years ago, that she really believed her time was up. I started to have pretty dark, suicidal thoughts. I've always had bouts of depression, but this was something else entirely. I don't mind telling you that it was quite frightening how I felt, she says, and after a while I realise that this is the first time she has talked about this in public. She says the menopause caused this deterioration in her mental state, and while she knew this at the time, she still wanted to die. There seemed no other option for her. HRT wasn't offered, as it clashed with her other meds. At the time, she was very active on Twitter, even getting close to a couple of strangers she befriended on the site, and to whose children she has since become Auntie Cathy after meeting up with them in real life. But behind her funny tweets about kicking out the Tories, she tells me she was hiding a horrible reality. Her main fear became, she says, not even the thought of suicide but the fact that whoever found her body would be traumatised by it. One of her life mottos is that every problem has a solution. She says she is one of life's problem solvers. So, in her darkest hour, she found a solution for her own corpse too. I hit upon the idea of, oh, I'll go to a nice hotel that's got a separate bedroom. You know, get a suite. Get a suite! burst of laughter as she mocks the grandiosity of her suicide plans. Then she is serious again. She speaks very calmly and seems genuinely at peace with the whole thing now. And then I would have just left a note on the bedroom door telling the chambermaid to not come in, get the manager, get the police. She pauses, exhales. It was weird. It was sort of once I'd made that decision, I could relax, you know? And then once I was relaxed, then the depression started to lift a wee bit. 
Suddenly, Kathy's podcast is cast in a startlingly different light. Oh, but I'm so glad I didn't kill myself during menopause, she says. Because that would have been, well, she killed herself because she was so miserable, you know? And to end feeling miserable, that would have been a bit of a shame. But listen, that didn't happen. I came through the other side and I'm fucking delighted I did. With no specific menopause treatment, she says she simply battled through until her body had come out the other side of it, which took a few years. She has a strong gang of friends and is immensely grateful for them and for Twitter at that time too. And then COVID arrived and lockdown and her curiosity returned. It's so strange because I know the pandemic was horrendous and I do know people who died. But there was a part of me that was sort of, wasn't it fascinating to live through this thing? And we are soon back on lighter ground again, talking about award ceremonies, partly because life is for living and she is so interested in living now, but also, as far as I can see, partly because she limits discussion of her own pain. I'm still wondering if she really did only cry because she wanted a Mars bar. The other thing I was really glad to witness was the Will Smith slap at the Oscars, she says. I know that sounds awful, but I sort of, she whispers, loved it. I mean, it was out of order and he fucked it up for himself more than anybody else. But I just loved seeing the faces of all these A-listers who didn't know what the fuck to do without an agent telling them. Acting didn't hold her attention for long enough. Burke likes to make the plays and shows herself now. This began after Nil by Mouth, back in the late 1990s, when she both starred in but also created the comedy series Gimme Gimme Gimme, after the BBC approached her to ask what she would like to be in. So she gave the playwright Jonathan Harvey his first TV gig and they wrote it together. At the time, telly was all about inventing likeable characters. And I just wanted to create people who are vile. People you'd avoid in the street. You know, this was the age of ecstasy. People being off their nut on drugs every night. I wanted it to be as base as possible. She often seems to have been there at the start of the careers of others in her industry who go on to be huge. She directed James McAvoy in his first London theatre job. And that was great, because everyone coming to see it was like, oh my God, who is this guy? In 2009, she directed James Corden and Matthew Horn in their TV series, Horn and Corden, long before Corden's huge American success. More recently, she directed Holding, the TV miniseries based on Graham Norton's novel for ITV. In the past 20 years, I've done three acting roles, And I might be about to do another one, a small one, which I can't talk about. Because what I never want to do is be on a film set every fucking day for six weeks as an actor. Most of the time you're sitting around doing nothing and it's mind-numbingly boring. She stopped doing comedy because all the characters had come from a feeling in her belly. And as long as that feeling was there, then she could do anything. But the feeling had gone, so she quit. I ask about her directing style. Is it hard not to boss everyone and be an arsehole? She says absolutely not. That's never been her style. 
she values emotional intelligence too much. When she directed a play with the wonderful actor Mark Bonner, I remember Mark saying to me, it's so strange working with you, Kathy, because it feels like we're just having a lovely time and we're not doing any work. He couldn't work out how it happened. She recently had her friend, the director Dominic Dromgoul, and his brilliant daughters round for lunch at her house in Highbury. She only likes socialising in this way now, can't handle big parties or even funerals, because her ears can't focus on the person talking to her. Plus, she's a foodie and loves cooking. So she was asking his eldest child, who had just finished at Cambridge, all about her love life. And afterwards, Dominic messaged me and said she felt awful. She said, oh my God, Daddy, I didn't ask Kathy about her love life. And I thought that was brilliant. You know, nobody's asked me about my love life for years. It doesn't come into it. I ask then, how is your love life? It's self-love life, she replies. That's what's going on. And winks. I ask if she still agrees with what she once said on Channel 4. Love is so magnificent, but also the worst thing, like wasps. She beams. Of course, but the good thing is now I'm too old to give a shit about love, you know? That romantic side of me is well and truly over, and it's, ah, it's lovely. It is lovely, she continues. Because for me, it's the real sense of true freedom. I just think it's something that is naturally in us humans to sort of want to be with a partner or to be in love. Because being in love is so exciting, if it's a nice love. But the drama of it, when you're young, that's all you fucking talk about. Who you are in a relationship with or who you want to be in a relationship with. And then getting older, it's like, oh my God, that isn't part of my conversation anymore. There are no more pets either. Her dog, Shenanigans, died after they had exactly a decade together, while her two cats lived 17 years. Dave died first of kidney failure, and then Missy lasted an extra month. I just think she thought, fuck it, I don't want to be on my own with her, I'll peg it too. During lockdown, Kathy's best friend Tilly got a kitten and tried to persuade Kathy to get one too because her kitten had a not-as-pretty sister. I went, well, fuck that, the ugly one can stay where she is, mate. So it's just her in the house now. She used to have lodgers, but doesn't want anyone coming home late. The bolts on the door at 10pm sharp. You know, when you get older, I suppose the real fear of death is that you haven't done everything you wanted to do. Also pain. What am I going to get? But there's something quite lovely about for me, personally, feeling, well, if I did die tomorrow, it'd be fine, she says, with such poise, such warmth, that it hits me what the most surprising quality on meeting Kathy Burke is. It's not her opinions or her wit, it's her gladness. Yeah, I had a lot of serious moments and I've got grief and I've lost friends and family members and there has been a lot of sadness, she says with that massive twinkle in her eye. The curiosity's still there. But I've had a blast. I really do think I've had an amazing life. That was I Came Through the Other Side. Kathy Burke on depression, the menopause, 
and her Fantasy Funerals podcast by Sophie Hayward, read by Emma Stannard. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this piece, we have included details of helplines you can contact on the episode page at theguardian.com. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to, and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles were read by Emma Stannard and Serena Mantegi and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.